This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com forward slash B-E. This is the Authority Podcast, where we talk with people who are the authority on their subjects. I am the creator, Jethro Jones. Join us as we discuss a wide range of topics from education to sociology to high performance and anything in between. We are a proud member of the B Podcast Network. You can find more of our shows at bpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Transformative Principal. I am very honored to have on the podcast today, Eric Francis. He's an international author, educator, and presenter with over 25 years of experience in education, working as a classroom teacher, a site administrator, education program specialist in a state education agency, and professional development producer and provider. Eric is the author of the new book, Deconstructing Depth of Knowledge, a Method and Model for Deeper Teaching and Learning, published by Solution Tree. He is also the author of, now that's a good question, How to Promote Cognitive Rigor Through Classroom Questioning, published by ASCD. Eric is the owner of Maverick Education, providing professional development guidance and support on how to develop and deliver teaching and learning experiences that are standards-based, socially and emotionally supportive, and student-responsive. He is also consistently ranked as one of the world's top 30 education professionals by the research organization Global Gurus. Eric, welcome to Transformative Principle. Thanks, Jessel. Thanks, thanks for having me on the show today. I really appreciate it. Man, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you today. I think depth of knowledge is a fascinating topic that I am not as expert in as you, so I love it when I get to talk to people who are smarter about it. So to set the stage, I think most people probably know, but could you just give us a 30-second overview of what depth of knowledge is so we can all understand it? Well, it's hard to even put in 30 seconds. I mean, basically, (laughs) because it's a very, very complex, complicated um, concept. And most of it, it's because it's become so convoluted uh, because of much of the misinformation and, and the inaccurate and inconsistent information we received over the last 10 years. 
pretty much if I had to do it as an elevator speech to go from the first floor to the second floor, depth of knowledge clarifies the cognitive demand of academic standards, curricular activities, and assessment items. That's as a concept. And what I mean by that is that when you talk about that, you're not looking at the type of thinking. That's what we've traditionally done. We've been doing that for the last 60 years. And um, since the transition to standards-based grading in the 1990s, that's what has been our emphasis, that thinking. Depth of knowledge goes beyond the cognitive actions students need to perform. So now we're going to the penthouse. Um, <laughs> basically, what depth of knowledge asks is two questions, actually three questions as I've come up with, where number one, when you look at a standard, because it all centers around a standard, what exactly must students think about and learn? That's identified by the noun or noun phrase that names the content, okay? How deeply must students understand and use their learning? That's described by all the words and phrases that follow an initial cognitive action or Bloom's verb in a learning intention. And how many objectives must students achieve to or complete to achieve that standard? That's what, in terms of depth of knowledge, it is. It's about going beyond the type and level thinking students must demonstrate, focusing on the complexity of content and the depth and extent of context. Mm. Okay, so let me let me try to understand this a little bit better. So we're going to look at standards, and then we're going to try to understand the different levels that are in there based on the noun that is stated and the verb that is stated and then figure out how deep we need to actually go in that content. Is that a fair summary of what you said or what? I not missed? the verb, not the verb, not okay. the verb. Okay. So specifically not the first verb. Okay. The thing about depth of knowledge, which is interesting about it is that it would, we've been, we've been wanting to use this as a method and model for teaching and learning and treating it like an academic concept in the DOK levels, like an ac like an academic framework or taxonomy for teaching and learning. It's not. See, Norman Webb originally developed depth of knowledge as a criterion for alignment studies. And he's even said to me in conversations that he regrets calling them levels. They're not actually levels, they're actually categories. And it all starts with the standard. That's why he originally developed it, to do alignment studies with standards and assessments. It's actually uh, one of five criteria for um, analyzing the alignment for the content focus. I know I'm sounding very technical, but let's simplify this. So when you do this for alignment studies, you look at your standard, you basically say, what is the DOK level of that standard? So it's a category. Is it a one, two, three, or four? Based upon the complexity of the content students must learn, the context, the conditions and criteria, how deeply they must understand and use their learning, and also how many different connections does a student have to make? So how many different objectives are there within the standard? Then you look at the assessment item and its objective and outcome, code it and compare it, and that will tell you the degree of alignment. So it all centers around standards. The, the one who said depth of knowledge is about what comes after the verb was Karen Hess. When she developed the concept of cognitive rigor, what she was doing with alignment studies was that she was pushing depth of knowledge. And everyone kept on saying, well, this is just another way to do blooms. And she said, no, it's not. And that's how she came up with the cognitive rigor matrix that we all use as part of the implementation of the Common Core Standards. What she did was she superimposed blooms and webs. To determine cognitive rigor, what you do is this. You look at the verb, you find out where it is in blooms, and then you put it aside. 
And then for depth of knowledge, you look and see what exactly and how deeply must students understand and use their learning. That's my question. That's my um, explanation of it. And that will tell you the column it goes in. So that's how you use the matrix. Again, the problem was that the matrix is great, but the way people have used it is they say, we want all kids to be doing a DOK3 or DOK4. That's ridiculous. Okay. It's not about value judgment. It's the same thing wrong with Bloom's taxonomy because we mm -hmm. use that as a value judgment. That the interpretation has been DOK1 is bad. DOK2 is okay. Just don't stay there. But we want everyone to get to a DOK3 or DOK4. No. Okay. What I'm saying is if it's a method of model for teaching and learning or what we want to use it as a method of model for teaching and learning, we start with the standard and everything starts with the standard. It's not just what we're testing. It's what a governing agency, some governing body has decided this is what it means to demonstrate proficiency at this grade level in this subject area. Okay. So that's what I mean by achieving the standard, reaching it. It starts with that. You deconstruct the standard. It's the next step in unpacking, unwrapping. And you start with the standard, but you tier your instruction to the DOK level where the students are, and you build upon their strengths so they can rise to, reach, and go beyond what I call that DOK bar, beyond the standard. That's what I did with it. I actually turned it into a multi-tiered system of support, an RTI model, where UBD, understand by design, begin with the end of mind. Here's the standard, okay? This is what you need to reach. Where are you on that pathway to proficiency or progression of performance? Can you do this? No. Can you do this? No. Can you do this? Yes. Good. Let's start there and build upon that student's strengths so they can rise to, reach, and go beyond it. That turns the depth of knowledge and the DOK levels not into a deficit model, which is how we traditionally do RTI, but actually a strengths finder. And that's why in the book, when you see it as an RTI, I put in the inverted RTI model that was developed by Austin Bufferman and Mike Matos, where you're not using it for the purpose of identifying do they need, what services do they need. You're using it to basically um, address and assess the needs and the strengths of the individual child and giving them those supports. Yeah. So it sounds like from your explanation that DOK is one of those things that we have over analyzed and simplified from what it was intended to do and made a direct application to the classroom. And we did it in the wrong way. Is that kind of what you're saying? That's that's what I'm saying. And a lot of it was how it was presented and provided to us as part of the Common Core trainings. You know, in 2008, they talk about these standards. And these standards will demand students to demonstrate different levels of thinking as um, defined, categorized by Bloom's taxonomy, and understanding user depth of knowledge as designated by this thing called Webb's DOK levels. Now, we have a ton of images about depth of knowledge out there. I'm uh, sorry, about Bloom's taxonomy out there. We have pyramids, we have steps, we have all this. There was no image for depth of knowledge. One of the states that was behind the creation of the Common Core curriculum and training materials, I'm not going to say who it is, but now you can probably think, what was one of the states? What was that curriculum called? Oh, yeah, Engage Something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they did a search for depth of knowledge, and they found that DOK wheel. And I want to show you here, Jethro, because I have this, because Karen has um, speculated about this in her book, um, A Local set, uh, Toolkit for Assessment, that... The DLK wheel 
a lot of people say that list looks like another way to do blooms because it is. Because in Barbara Clark's book, which is called Growing Up Gifted, that was published in the 1980s, she produced this thing called the Bloom's Hot Wheel. This is page 290 of the book Growing Up Gifted. Okay. See the wheel there? Yep. What does that look like? The DOK wheel. It sure does. The only difference is the Bloom's Hot Wheel has five spokes and the DOK wheel has four. What happened was Florida was one of the first states to do alignment studies with depth of knowledge. Most people do it with Bloom's, but Florida was one of the people who did it, states that did it with DOK. A teacher uploaded that graphic to the internet and said, this is depth of knowledge. I mean, Norman Webb told me about this. He started encountering this wheel. And it's funny because if you look on the poster, they credit him and he refutes it. He didn't create that wheel. He refutes it. There's a URL address on that poster. If you've seen the poster out there, go to it. It takes you to a dead link. It's not even the accurate tool for the web alignment tool. Okay. And if you find the correct link and I can get it to you, there's nothing about the DOK wheel in there. So this thing got uploaded to the internet. When they were developing the Common Core training materials, someone did a Google search and they found a DOK wheel. And basically what happened was, was they said, oh, it's on the internet, it's from Florida, it must be true, because Florida was one of the states and they were really behind the Common Core. So they made that poster. And they also made this video, and this is something I found out after I wrote the book, because I was like, who produced, where did this video come from? Have you ever seen the DOK video for the training? What I understood about it is that Karen Hess wrote the script for the depth of knowledge video. And they showed the depth of knowledge video, the producers of this, and showed it with the DOK wheel. And Karen said, you need to take out the DOK wheel, it's inaccurate. And the state that produced the video or the system that produced the video said, too late, it's done, it's going out. Mm -hmm. So now we get this misinformation. And... 45 states who adopt the Common Core say, um, does anyone have a training on DOK? So this one state said we did. Spread it. And if you remember the trainings, they were trained to trainer models. So you went to your state department or you went to your regional center and you got trained and you brought it back. And then, you know, people like you and me who do professional development and do presentations, we started writing about it. Oh, this is this way to do it. It's a different way to do blooms, even though that thing is full of verbs. And, and that's how basically it's been miscommunicated. And to tell you the truth, that's been a hard challenge for me because this document is everywhere and it's free and it was given out by our state departments. It's still on state department websites. And people are like, well, why would the state departments give us the wrong information? You know, and, and, and when you tell people that it's wrong, they misinterpret to say that they're wrong. No, we've all been wrong because we've yeah. been given the wrong information. It's okay to accept that. And what's interesting is there's a lot of people who have different impressions and interpretation of what depth of knowledge is. I look at it as a method model for teaching and learning. Norman Webb looks at it as a criterion for alignment studies. Karen Hess looks at it as a measure of cognitive rigor. There's some people out there who try to turn it into a value judgment, and I don't agree with that at all because now you're putting pressure, undue pressure. So what we all agree on is that depth of knowledge is about what comes after the verb. And that's a big mind shift in education. Because if you remember, we probably trained, you know, Bloom's taxonomy, or maybe you're using Solo, or maybe you're using Marzano. And you're saying, oh my gosh, I got to make sure my verbs are analyze, evaluate, or create. I can't just have them always remember and understand and apply. Well, it depends on how deeply I'm having them apply it. 
But the problem with cognitive action verbs is that they're abstract. They differ in the specific skills required in different subject areas, and they have multiple meanings. Depth of knowledge makes it more concrete and targeted strategic about what exactly and how deeply students must understand and use their learning. Yeah, so I, I get really frustrated when I learn about how we have done things poorly in education and not been clear about what it is that we're doing or implemented things incorrectly. It's, it's one of my major pet peeves, but let's talk about how we can actually use this information that you have now to, to help us use this effectively, especially as it relates to the pandemic and how we changed so many things. And let me just say what I saw largely with the pandemic was that teachers completely abandoned the the things that we've been working on for the last several years about personalizing education and making it applicable and relatable to students. And they went back to this sage on the stage, the teachers delivering all the content and kids are just paying attention to it. And, you know, especially with lessons that were required to be pre-recorded and then uploaded so kids could watch on their own time, we lost a lot of the of the depth, not to be confused with depth of knowledge, but just the richness of a teaching environment. So what can we do now that we've, (laughs) I feel like we've taken three steps back uh, over the course of the pandemic. What can we do now? We have to be brave enough to reboot the matrix is what I say about it. You know, we have to, and, and, and not resurrect it. Okay. Which is a horrible movie besides that point. (laughs) Um, We really just kind of need, to be brave enough to say and recognize and realize that the school we taught at, and Tom Herrick talks a lot about this, is that the school we taught we taught at um, on March 13th, 2020 is gone, okay? The way we were taught and our experience, not only as teachers, but students, is not, there's elements of it that can remain, but we need to change too. You know, we need to change too. And a lot of, you can't really, it's really hard because this is a really hard conversation because if you critique the teachers, how we taught during the pandemic, they're going to take it personal. Mm -hmm. And what do you expect? We were supposed to pivot. Yeah, I totally get that. But you were given a Tesla and you drove it like a Ford Edsel, which means that basically, you know, you you, you went back to your comfort area. And, And that's the thing is that we teach the way we were taught and we teach what we understand. This is a perfect time because because I, I really don't think and, and this is something that and I'm bold enough to say this. You know, we've been talking about shifting since the 1990s, Jethro, but really we haven't. We've been scrambling. Mm-hmm. OK, we talk about how in the 1990s when we went from the industrial age to the information age. Now we need to shift our teaching and we we say shift it, but we've been scrambling and it's like we've been transplanting trees. You know, and that's your year long initiatives that need to be more than a year. It takes three years for an initiative to go through. So, like, for example, this year I go, okay, we're going to differentiate instructions, our initiative school wide. Crap, that didn't work. Let's uproot the tree. Let's put literacy across the curriculum. Crap, that didn't work. Let's uproot the tree. Let's put SEL. Okay, that's not working. Now what? We really just need to plant a seed. And what I see with depth of knowledge, and the reason why I wrote this book is, I look at this as a method and model moving forward that, okay, we've been doing it inaccurately and inconsistently for the last 10 years. Here's what it is and here's how it can benefit us. 
I look at depth of knowledge as an extension of how we unpack and unwrap the standards. And your audience just now heaved the big sigh and rolled their eyes and went, oh, here we go. We're going to circle verbs and underline nouns. Mm -hmm. No, it's the next step. You circle the verb, you underline a noun, great. Look at that first verb you circled. Put it aside. Look at everything that came after that verb. What exactly are your students thinking about or learning? That's that first noun phrase. How deeply? That's all the words and phrases that describe the conditions and criteria. Are there more than one objective? Yeah. Okay, good. Now we need to unwrap and deconstruct those and determine their DOK levels. And that will tell us specifically what exactly and how deeply students must understand and use their learning to achieve that standard. That's one way. The other way I look at it is that you can look use depth of knowledge and build those multi-tiered system of supports. If I know the standard is a DOK3, then I can do an RTI to say, can you do it at a DOK2 level at this grade level? No. Can you do it at DOK1 at this grade level? No. Do I have to go to lower grade levels and check the DOK levels there to see where you are? Where'd you stop learning? Where is that disconnect? But where's your strength? I also talk about in the book how it can strengthen and supplement PLCs mm -hmm. using the four questions from DeFore. What do we want students to learn? That's the DOK level of the standard. How do we know that they're learning it? We assess to the DOK level of the standard, not just add it, to it. What if they struggle to learn it? We tier it to the DOK level that they are and then address it at that student's DOK level and support them so they can rise to reach and go beyond that DOK bar. What do they do once they've learned it or if they already know it, then you always take it to the next DOK level. That doesn't turn it into a taxonomy, that turns it into a multi-tiered system support. Yeah. I, it, you know, one of the ideas of the book was to call it the missing link because I believe get depth of knowledge is really that missing link that keeps on saying, why aren't we reaching, why aren't we differentiating instruction effectively? Why aren't we modifying or accommodating our exceptional learners or our English language learners? Why is it we're not addressing the needs of gifted and talented and twice exceptional effectively? That's what depth of knowledge can do. And that's what I talk about in the book, because there's a whole chapter I talk about how you can extend the DOK levels. There's things called EDOCs. People don't know there's actually a six-level DOK. You tell them about a four, they get, they get <laughs> well, confused. What do you mean there's a six-level? It was originally designed for alternative assessments for um, exceptional and English language learners. And what I did with it, and I said the EDOCs are where you put for English language learners, your language objectives, your language focus, your language features, you overlay it on the DOK levels. For exceptional learners, you use uh, applied behavioral analysis, ABA therapy, which I work with a school with autism out here to say, that's where I put my IEP goals and objectives. And EDOC one is, how can I comprehend and communicate um, the learning to respond? And how can I comprehend and communicate the learning to reproduce? And then you put that over the DOK levels or gifted, I call it a GDOC, that's acceleration. Can You can do a DOK2 at a third grade level. Can you do it at a fifth grade level? Can you do it at an eighth grade level? And a GDOC2 is enrichment. Okay, here's all these ways you can do this, or here's all these different themes. Which one do you think is a central idea or theme, or which way is your way and why? That's GDOC2 enrichment. That's based on the Renzulli uh, um, gifted and talented model. Before we move on, let's hear from our sponsors. This is making me think a lot because I my philosophy of education is that um, 
one, we give kids what they need when they need it. And understanding how depth of knowledge works enables you to do that in a more effective way. However, there are there are times when we get a little, I don't know what the right word is, but in education we say it, it pretty much doesn't exist if it didn't happen in my classroom. And, mm-hmm. and we discredit the things that kids are learning outside of the regular classroom when I really think we should be bringing that in as evidence to, to what they are learning in the regular classroom. Where do you, where do you stand on that kind of stuff? And can, can something that a student did outside of class be, be measured and valued by what the teacher is also providing inside the class? Does that make oh, sense? most definitely. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Because here's the thing is that we have two different types of, let's call it assessment. Okay, that's another thing we need to change. We need to change our language. Stop saying test. Test tells me what you know, understand, and can do on that day. Assessment tells me this is where you are according to this assessment. And it tells me where I need to go next. Okay, that's authentic assessment, what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's what GOK actually even lends itself to. Most standards, unless it's the next generation science standards or the writing standards and the ELA um, standards, will not be a DOK four. They're too they're too extensive. Okay, they take too much time and effort, which is a characteristic, not a criterion. But also, they're too intricate and involved. What we need to do is we need to stop judging the kids based upon whether they can. Um, answer that item that's given to them. That's like basically judging a baseball player on the pitch that's thrown at them. Not pitches, but that one pitch that's yes. thrown at them. That's a great analogy. Yeah, Derek Jeter has struck out, okay? And, and you know, Babe Ruth struck out, and, and Mickey Mantle struck out, and, and you know, Reggie Jackson struck out, and you guys just all figured out what my favorite baseball team is. <laughs> and, and, and basically, that's how we judge kids, and that's how we're using these tests. It's a sports mentality. You know, I'm in Arizona. Arizona Cardinals had one of the best seasons in years. What do you remember? They didn't go to the Super Bowl. Okay? Think about the Patriots. The Patriots went 19 that one year. The Panthers went 19 that one year. What do you remember? They didn't win the Super Bowl. Okay? That authentic assessment, and that's what depth of knowledge can lend it to, is that that item is a pitch in baseball. That item is a snapshot in a moment in time. Maybe that item was a bad item because sometimes you get thrown a bad pitch in baseball. Yeah. Okay. Or maybe it's like the kid decided, you know what? I'm not going to go swing at it. I'm going to go take a ball because I don't like the way that's being thrown at me and I'm going to skip that item. Okay. But if we use DOK, the standard tells us specifically and concretely what the students need to do to demonstrate learning. True assessment is not only can you do it, demonstrate it, but also can you communicate it, you know? Can you teach someone else how to do this? Can you justify why that outcome came? Can you explore different ways or that you can use this authentically? That's the okay. So I totally agree. I mean, that's the problem with standardized assessment. We're not using it as assessment. We're using it as a, a value judgment and I'm going to tell you honestly, and I've been talking to a lot of kids about this, since the states have pulled away from making the assess the, the the standardized state assessments a graduation requirement kids don't care mm-hmm. and they're throwing the tests on purpose and the kids in middle school i mean my daughter even told me this that basically a bunch of them just wrote down whatever and her attitude is what's why i'm just going to go to ninth grade it doesn't matter okay that's what they did in eighth grade and some kids even cruelly they've even figured it out to say 
you know what, if I throw this test, that's going to look bad for my teacher, you know, and that's when you have the administrators keep on walking in your room. And that's when you have those that thing that, that those people they call instructional coaches always watching you. So it's almost like you're getting the teacher in trouble. That's what I mean by rebooting the system. We need mm -hmm. to basically say it's not it is what it is, but it is what you make of it. We live in a world where we are held accountable by a standardized assessment that's either given on one day or over the course of the week. How can I basically use that data and use other data? Yeah, they couldn't pass the assessment on that day. What if, what if that's the day that the kid's uh, parents got divorced? What if that's the day the kids found out their parents were being evicted? And it doesn't it it doesn't even have to be that extreme, right? Right. What if right. they just woke up in a bad mood because they had a bad dream last night? I exactly. mean, any of those things could cause that. Yeah. Or what if they broke up with their boyfriend or girlfriend or one of my buddies in high school? You know what happened when we did the SCT? They, you know, high school in the 80s. Pencils down, eyes up. Wrote his name down, eyes up. Locked it on a girl he had a crush on across the room. Stared at her for three hours. He got 300 on his SATs. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> it's just like you can't just judge it. And if you use it as a test, then the kids feel anxious about it. I just worked with a school where they said to me, the kids all through the test. And I said, well, yeah, because you called it a test. What do you mean they called it? What's wrong with that? I said, it's not a test. It's an assessment. Assessment tells me, are we re where do we go next? Okay. So if the majority of the kids are performing poorly on the assessment, my first question is, why what happened? You got to do an item analysis. You got to look and see how closely that item addresses the standard being assessed. You got to look at how the kids answered. If the correct answer is B and C, why did the kids only answer B? Oh, because they didn't recognize it said which ones. Mm -hmm. Or they didn't see that they could answer more than one question or they didn't read the question properly, okay? Or if the kids are throwing it, and, and we found out the kids were throwing the assessment, and we said, well, we're not ready to go to the next level. And I go, why not? Well, according to the assessment, you're not ready. But we know this. Okay, good. You want to try to do the assessment again? Yeah, sure. Miraculously, somehow, when they realize that this thing was used to determine whether they're ready to go to the next level, which is that authentic level, because they've now attained proficiency, achieved proficiency, the score shot up. What does that say? You know, that's why I'm saying we need to reboot the matrix. Mm -hmm. Okay, we've been stuck you know, we got to realize that, you know, we're li we have been living in this standards-based world that has not been the greatest because it went from a nice-to-know to a need-to-do. I mean, we, I mean, if you can think about it this way, you know how we say we're teaching on an 18th century schedule in a 19th century uh, classroom using 20th century curriculum? Now you can say we're using a no-child-left-behind common core mindset. Mm -hmm. So what are we doing? And we also need to make sure that we're balancing it. We need to stop doing this. We're focusing on this and we're focusing not on this. You know, social emotional learning is our initiative. We're not focusing on academic rigor or standards-based instruction. No, social emotional learning is academic rigor. Social emotional learning is standards-based instruction. Because if you do that authentic RTI, where you say, this is where the finish line is, and I need to figure out where you are in the pathway to get you there by figuring out and helping you recognize and realize your strengths, that's social emotional or mm -hmm. helping you figure out the way you can do it. That's social emotional. Yeah. And those things are really important because they help kids see why what we're doing actually matters. 
and mm-hmm. and the reason that kids are willing to throw tests and especially state tests is that they know that it doesn't really mean anything and that it reflects more on their teacher than it does on them individually. That makes total sense. And this is the the area where I think that we have done a disservice to students and to teachers, to be honest, because we've put so much emphasis on it. And to go back to your pitching analogy, that we've also said that every single test question is a perfect pitch instead of saying, there could be some bad ones in there. And right. and when you have to go and then do an item analysis, no teacher has time to do an item analysis for every single thing that they do. It's just they're, they're not going to take the time to do that. But if you do it in a way that makes sense and says, like you mentioned in your example, here's here's how we know if we can go on if we if we get this. And, I mean, this is stuff that I was doing uh, 15 years ago as a teacher in a middle school classroom. I said, look, our next thing – is this you have to get these questions right to move on to the next thing and if you don't get them right we can't you can't move on because it's essential to know that this before you can move on to the next thing and those those two years that we did that were the best years teaching that there could have been because every assessment kids took it seriously and saw how it impacted what they would do next and they they got on board with it and it was fun because they were learning and enjoying it you know, and the other thing about this is that item analysis, it's how you do it. Because what we generally do is we get the scores back and we go, oh man, 30% of our kids achieve proficiency on that, according to this item on that standard. Okay, well, what was the item asking them? And you look at the, I mean, I saw some bad items. I saw, and if you see one that goes beyond the DOK level of the standard, you need to dismiss it. Mm-hmm. because it's not basically appropriate. I mean, that's the thing. We test to and at. To test beyond or only at would make the test too difficult. But if I also use, and it's really funny because I've talked to teachers like this. I said, did you ever think about showing that item, that test item to the kids? I'm like, I can do that? Yeah. And you turn that into a lesson. If I, what I do, and I, and I train teachers to do this, is say, okay, let's look at the items all the kids got majority incorrect. 50% or less got it correct because most of them are multiple choice. We know that. And I said, okay, so here's the deal. The correct answer was C. Why do you think, why did 60% of the kids pick B? Or why did the kids pick the other ones? When you're doing that, you're at a DOK3 because the DOK3 is all about thinking strategically or using complex reasoning supported by evidence to examine and explain. So if you want to do a DOK3 every single time, give the kids the answer and ask why is that correct or incorrect? Prove it, okay? Yeah. Or and, and and it becomes a teachable moment. And what you can do with it is this, and this is why I teach teachers to say, okay, so why did so many people get this incorrect? Oh, because of this, this, this. Okay, now what I want you to do is, I want you to write a note to your best friend or write a note to somebody and say, watch out when you see stuff like this because this is the way they do it. The problem with assessments, and especially standardized assessments, they're becoming trick questions. Mm-hmm. When you ask kids which ones and put in parentheses, okay, you're trying to trick them because what do we traditionally learn? There's only one correct answer. That's what math teaches us, one correct yep. answer. But there's multiple ways to get it, and that's the what we need to start teaching the kids. There are multiple ways to get at it. And it's really funny because – in English language arts, there's no one central idea or theme to a text. It's what either you taught me, this book says, or what I think. Okay? There's multiple things we got to justify with evidence. In math, it's the same thing. 
There's multiple ways to figure out that two plus two could equal four. Which way works best for you and why? And that's the other thing, the problem with the Common Core standards. This whole thing about, you know, that joke from The Incredibles 2. You know, there's only one way to do math. No, we don't do math that way anymore. No, we do math how we do math. There's multiple ways. Do you get that? No. Okay, then don't use that way. Mm-hmm. Okay? If you can't hit the baseball by resting on your shoulder, but, man, you can knock it out of the park by waving it over the top of your head or doing a low swing up, doesn't matter because you're knocking the ball out of the park and you're still sticking within the parameters of the game. Okay, you're not playing cricket and you're not doing golf or hockey. You know, you're not, beca- but you know, you think of it this way. You're like um, Happy Gilmore figuring out, man, if I go and hit the golf ball like a hockey puck, I'm going to go and knock that, you know, be a great golfer. Yeah. See what I mean? And that's what I mean by letting kids figure out their way. Like one thing I say a lot is that, we teachers, and again, music analogy, we're the red hot chili peppers. Why? Because the minute we teach something, it's not ours anymore. We're giving it away, giving it away, giving it away, giving it away now. But the kids, they're like Frank Sinatra because they look at it and go, I totally get that. That's my way. Now, what if it's a way you don't understand or can't teach? Do you just not teach it? Traditionally, we didn't. But this is a new generation who learns from multi-sensory you know, technology, multi-sensory inputs. This is a generation where they don't get music lessons at Monty's Music. They go on YouTube and learn how to play guitars. Yeah. You know? And if we showed the kids a video, like there's five ways to multiply multi-digit numbers. Four I could teach you. I get it. One I can't. Do I just not do that way? No. I show the video from Khan Academy or I show the video that's on YouTube that explains it. I said, who understands that? They raised their hand. Can you explain to me how that happens? Well, yeah, they basically, what they did, they laid the sticks over together and then they basically counted up the sticks that overlaid and grouped them together. And I'm like, do you understand that? Yeah, good. You want that to be your way? Good. Okay, here's the thing. If you do it that way, you're going to have to explain to me how you did it. Are you okay with that? Yeah, that's fine. As long as you let me do it that way. Yeah, good. Is that what we want at the end of the day? Yeah, totally. We want the kids to become the teachers. You know, that's what I mean by reboot the matrix shift the matrix yeah that's really good and i think the other thing about that is that if you can be okay with with kids learning in the way that works for them you can see amazing results because of that so the last question i want to ask you is what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative principal like you oh that's a good question and I want to really think about that because I don't want to just come out with some pat answer. I've seen people who say, be awesome. No, I don't want to do that, you know? So basically, I would say, why are you teaching what you're teaching? Okay? Why are you doing this? I, I, I would really get to that. And, you know, and, and that's a hard question. But you know what that is? That's Simon Sinek's Find Your Why. Start with why, find your why. That really saved me during the pandemic. Why are you doing this? Well, the standards. No, no, that's the what. Okay, why are you doing this? Why are you teaching this science fiction unit? Well, because I got to read Ray Bradbury. No, that's what the curriculum demands. Why? To have students recognize and realize 
the value of learning so they understand the larger picture. So how are you going to do this, Eric? Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have them read Fahrenheit 451 and the stories from Ray Bradbury in the textbook. But I'm also going to have them go and, and um, choose their own Ray Bradbury story. Or, you know, I'm going to have them read short science fiction stories and then I'm going to have them write their own. See what I mean? That's my how. Why are you doing what you're doing? Well, the standard says this. Yeah, we know what, but why are you doing it? Okay, why do we learn about the Pythagorean theorem? So we can build things, okay? So we can, you know, why? So that, that's basically really ask, why are you doing this? And I think that's something we all really have to ask ourselves. Like, you know, and, and, and the thing is like, the other thing is like, so what do you think your students took away from the experience? And, and another question I would always ask is this, is that, do you think your students learned what you taught them today? Or they learn it so deeply that 20 years from now, when they're on whatever social media is, they're going to look at you and go, hey, you're that teacher who taught me how to do that. Mm -hmm. That's what our kids remember. I mean, I'm friends with a bunch of my former students. And what they always remember about me is either that's the guy who taught me how to write paragraphs. Um, that's the guy who taught me that uh, the reason why Rose got naked in Titanic was because she was transitioning from 19th century Victorian woman to 20th century modern woman. That That's a long story in <laughs> the curriculum because we were reading A Night to Remember and I told the kids we'll watch Titanic from when it hits this iceberg, which is where the book starts, and they all wanted to um, watch the whole movie. And I said, you know why we can't? And I said, fine, I'll show the whole movie, but you got to write a paper. How does that scene where he draw Rose um, reflect Rose transitioning from 19th century Victorian um, very, very conservative, very, very, you know, um, arranged marriages, you know, woman to a more modern 20th century modern woman where she was more, you know, independent, free and responsible for her own actions and in, and her thoughts. So that's what my kids will remember. The kids will remember me when I taught them that if you overlay uh, a graph over football, you can make linear, use linear equations to make football plays. Mm -hmm. Be creative as a teacher. We're creative. We're artists. Okay. And you can't depend upon your curriculum to make that artistry. You know, that's like me giving you Eddie Van Halen's guitar and saying to you, okay, now go play Eruption. Yeah. No. Okay. Not going to happen. So, so that's my thing. Why are you doing this? And how do you know the kids got it? Did they, is it something they got by the end of the day? Or do you think it's something they're going to remember you 20 years from now and go, that's the teacher who taught me this and gave me that experience? Yeah, that's really good. I think the other thing that I would that I would add is a strategy for asking why, that you ask five whys to get to the real why. And, mm -hmm. um, and if you can go five whys deep, you can almost always get to what the real why is. And throw out all the what answers and the how answers and the who answers – it's really about the why, and, and that's a great strategy. Well, I'll give you even a better one, Jethro. This oh, is one let's do it. What do you mean? Okay? What do you mean is responsive? And some people think, oh, that sounds put off. But I'm telling you right now, and I'm going to give a personal story if we got time with this. I once had a parent complaint, and this parent was going to rake me over the coals. I'm not following the IEP, you know, the 504, even though I set all that up. I had a student, he was a genius. He was, you know, 1,600 SATs, 500 LS AP exams, failed every class because he never came to school. He was gifted but manic depressive. Mm -hmm. And part of the thing was was that that basically one of the things she demanded was that he can turn in his work whenever he wanted. And it, it, he got more frustrated with me on a more of emotional level than an academic level. So she wanted to pull me, you know, put, rake me over the coals. So I went to my dad and my dad, I told him, I said, boy, she's going to rake me over the coals. And he goes, 
did you do anything wrong? And I said, no. And he goes, well, every time she says something, say, what do you mean? Or what does that mean? And I said, why? He goes, because she can't just throw out stuff. And it gets her to think she's got to explain and justify it. D.O.K. This is before you buy a new D.O.K. I said, but dad, that's really going to tick her off. He goes, yeah, right. Good. Okay. <laughs> So how many times have you been in those meetings where, you know, and then I'll tell you what the parent did. You know, my principal says to me, we are gathered here today. And I go, whoa, wait a minute. Hold on a second. And he goes, you know, you have some complaints against Mr. Francis. Please share them. You don't like my child. What do you mean? You're mean to him. What do you mean? You, you don't respect him. What do you mean? You're not sensitive to his needs. What do you mean? Why do you keep on asking me, what do you mean, Mr. Francis? Because I need examples and evidence so either you can explain myself or apologize. Well, you're not following the 504. What do you mean? You're not allowing him to turn his homework, you know, in whenever he wants. What do you mean? You're not being sensitive to the fact that some days he just cannot get up. What do you mean? You know what I finally got to root to? My child doesn't think you're funny anymore, doesn't like you anymore, and wants out of your class. Guess what I said? What do you mean? You know? <laughs> my principal is there. He's laughing. He goes, oh, my gosh. He goes, you were doing that as a PD. That's how I kind of got into this. Let's see about doing that with our kids. Jethro, what's two plus two? Four. What do you mean? If I have two of this and two of this, then I get four of that. Isn't that the important question? Mm -hmm. Okay. How about this? Who's the first president of the United States? George Washington. What do you mean? He was elected to be the first president after he won the Revolutionary War. How soon after he won the Revolutionary War? See, I lead into it and I say, well, how do you know? And somebody goes, I can Google it. And if you Google it, you'll start seeing something about a guy named John Hansen, who was the first president appointed under the Articles of Confederation. He wasn't elected. He was appointed. They had no power. In fact, there were eight presidents before Washington was elected. And if people start going, well, why are you going into that? Because the standard says this, understand how the Articles of Confederation led to the writings of the U.S. Constitution. One of them was the failure of the fact that we didn't have an executive power. And that's not discussed in any textbooks. No, it's not. That's that was new I, information for me. I'm going to have to go Google that now. Well, good. See, that's <laughs> the thing. So now 20 years from now, when we're still friends and now we're on Facebook, uh, we are. Eric, you're the one who told me that John Hansen was actually the first president of the United States. No, he's the first president of the United States in Congress Assemble. Not what we know, but that's what his title was. So use this. Someone comes at you. What do you mean? Let them think. Let them elaborate. That will not only allow your students, but also your teachers and your stakeholders basically understand and use their learning at a DOK3 or DOK4 or DOK2. Yeah, this is really good. If you want to follow uh, Eric on Twitter, it's at MaverickEDU12. And if you want to right. check out his website, MaverickEducation.com. And again, go get his book, which is Deconstructing Depth of Knowledge, A Method and Model for Deeper Teaching and Learning. Eric, thanks so much for being part of Transformative Principle today. Jethro, thank you for giving me the forum where I can talk and share ideas. I appreciate it. And, you know, we're, we've been knowing each other for a long time, and I really value our friendship as well. So thank you for having me on. Agreed. Thank you. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.